and here we are back again for yet another episode of Never Mind. Never Mind. And this is number nine. Number nine. Number nine. Nine is a very significant number. Is Why? I don't know either. It's probably just a label. Okay. What is superstition, Jensen? What is superstition? Hmm. Speak of superstition. Well, that can just lead back into fear. Superstition is a uh, irrational, would you say, not based on fact or reason, a belief system that we inherit or we maybe take on that colours our world. People uh, will never sort of allow a black cat to cross their path. Where has there been any recorded evidence of bad things happening after a black cat crossed your path? <laughs> I can't answer that. I can't answer that. There's sort of like, there's various cultural superstitions, I guess, depending on culture and background and what have you. Yeah. And these become thoughts that are just um, uh, ingrained in a person's interaction with the world. Yeah, but when you think about it, all of these ingrained interactions that we talk about, uh, how many of them actually have any basis in our own personal experience? And how many of them are just sort of uh, imported influences that we've just taken on board because of culture, as you say? Mm. I mean, I was in a meeting a couple of weeks ago and uh, I said that uh, something had not yet occurred and everyone was knocking on the table. I'm knocking on wood. Yeah. And I'm thinking at the time I thought, well, and, and they all did it spontaneously. It was crazy. It was like yeah. a, a reflex action. Yeah. Three different people were knocking on wood, and I'm watching them knocking on wood and thinking, what, what, where did that come from? Where did it come from? I mean, what was, the, what, what, what was the instance where they didn't knock on wood that something bad happened? Yeah, well, that's the thing, isn't there? With, with various thoughts and so, far, so forth, already contained within them is a lot of this baggage as well. So it becomes like an automatic response or reaction is probably a better word, mm. that's already ingrained into the thing. So the conditioning is already involved there in the first place. Isn't that interesting? And then, you know, they're talking about epigenetics now. Do you know about epigenetics? I've heard that. So the idea is that initially behaviour was considered to be learned and that you had the um, genetic influences uh, that predispose you to give you certain, uh, perhaps, abilities or weaknesses, but all the behavioural stuff was learned. But now they're starting to see that there are uh, traits, specific behavioural traits, that can be inherited by the organism. And my son, who's studying uh, biology at uni, told me of this instance of uh, a gene for social behaviour that they found in, well, what was the species, desert voles, I think. Is that right? They're like a meerkat. A rat or oh, so, some, some kind of yeah. mam mammal, marsupial yep. type animal. Maybe not a marsupial, but a, a mammal. Yep. And uh, it turns out that there is this gene that exists that generally, by, by disposition, they're not very social animals. Or no, actually, no, I, I tell a lie. There are two different genotypes. There are the social ones and the, and the antisocial ones. But they found that if you take an antisocial one and uh, put in the gene, splice in the gene for social behaviour, suddenly it becomes gregarious and, you know... Gregarious vole. Out partying and, you know... N home not until the early hours and yep. you know, always in trouble. So, you know, it's a pretty scary idea, isn't it, that our behaviours might just be not even within the control of uh, 
any of the learned experience that we which and this I think goes to your point about the uselessness of trying to use thought to control uh, your environment, your situation, or to know the know the points, the extent of your true nature. Yeah, because it may be just it's beyond the capability. It's in a different sort of realm to the realm of thought. And uh, tell me what you think about that idea. Yeah, well, um, I uh, it's it. I agree. I mean, all of this is just happening. It's just purely happening. It's mm. purely happening. I like the saying of um, someone once said, uh, "Relax, um, no one's in control." <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty comforting thought. <laughs> <laughs> but see, there's beautiful in that if. If that dawns, that there's literally nowhere to go with any of this, mm. that, that can also mean that there's no entity there that can do anything with it. So that in itself is liberating Very because liberating. it's just taking care of itself. Very liberating. And what, what's happening all the time is we're superimposing over the top with this process of thought. Mm. We're superimposing. So thought is like an interloper that comes in. Right, right. And so this desire to control that we have, some of us have, some of us don't have, but those, those that have it, it's an entrapment. It's a form of bondage. It is. Because it's a, it's, it's a lie for a start that you can control anything, really external to yourself. I mean, what, what can you... Okay, well, someone's going to say, well, that's not true. I can control the lighting in this room. Yep. I can get up and turn on the light switch. Yep. That's control. Yep. Well, you'd have to agree that that's probably right. But what about the things that govern my emotional state or other people's behavior or other people's life circumstances? Yeah. Well, see, there's two points there. The first one with the light, you can peel that back again and, and, and go, well, it's still not in control because the very fact that you've got to alter the light has come about because of something that's come prior. So what's happening then is a response to that particular thing. So, and then as far as, you know, like energy, as far as emotion and experience, they, that too just plays out the way it plays out. It's always, with all these things, there's a trigger that's happening there's a trigger that happens and then the response comes because of that. It's not independently happening. So there's no causation at that level? It, well, well, no, because, I mean, causation, this only that only applies within this realm of thinking. That's right. So I was going to say, you thinking. can't deny causation on the relative plane because when I hit the light switch, the light does go on most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> right? Now, I, I've been thinking that through. We don't have control over the power station or the quality of the circuitry in the house, sure. like the wiring. Yeah. So it's possible that one day I'm going to hit the switch and nothing happens yeah. during a power blackout. Yeah. Right? But so, that, so even, even relative control is not a certain thing. Yeah. Uh, I remember when I was at uni studying psychology, there was this interesting experiment that people were... Um, they were looking at extinction behavior, how long it takes to extinct a behavior, not to learn one, but to drop a behavior. And the example they gave was um, you have a vending machine in a, in a building that contains cans of drink, soft drink. And so people put money in and the drink comes out of the chute. 
And then one day um, you put the money in and the drink doesn't come out of the chute. Now, the question is, how long does that need to occur before they stop putting the money in? And the answer is, this is a fascinating uh, insight into human thinking. It depends on the reliability of the prior experience, which goes back to your point. Mm. If the prior conditioning was that every time I put money in the machine, I got a drink without fail, then the first time you put money in and you don't get a drink, you're probably not going to put money in a second time. If, on the other hand, and they actually showed this experimentally, you put a vending machine in there that was intermittent in how it gave out drinks. So half the time it didn't work. You'd have to shake the machine or, you know, and you still wouldn't get your drink. And other times you put it in, the money in, the drink would come straight out. It turns out that in that situation, people were prepared to put in money many more times before they realized that there was no drink that was ever going to come out than the ones that knew for sure, based on prior experience, mm. that the machine was pretty reliable. And so I think that's a very interesting um, way, an insight, I guess, into the idea of expectation, how expectation plays on um, our, our, the way that we view the world. Mm. And the more expectations you've got, the, uh, the more suffering you're going to have. Because the more often when the machine isn't going to work, in various life circumstances, whether whether that expectation may be, you know, in terms of relationships or mm. work or uh, financial situation or whatever, uh, are we saying that people with no expectations will never be disappointed? Well, if you've got no expectations, there's nothing that you're knocking your head on That's because right. other times, every time something happens that doesn't fit within your view of what should or shouldn't happen, mm -hmm. there's unhappiness, there's disappointment, there's suffering. Right. So if you give up hope, then all you're left with is reality. And, and you can know <laughs> nothing about that at all. <laughs> oh, so abandon hope, all ye who <laughs> enter here, because hope is yet another form of delusion. Yeah, another thing just to sort of uh, hang your hat on, basically. Right. I mean, again, in the in the relative world, uh, we wouldn't deny people the um, the uh, the function or the the privilege of hope, but I think when you get to the idea of the big unfoldment, mm. that has nothing to do with expectation, mm. and in fact, expectation can often get in the way, as you say. Mm because it's just another thought, it's another setup. Yeah. And then, you know, disappointment, no result. Um, you start to have recriminations. Um, I don't know, maybe, eventually maybe you go down the slippery slide where you think from that constant disappointment that, that nothing is dependable or worth living on. And I remember the situation of the person that got so depressed that they said, well, you know, I can't live with myself anymore. And then the their world fell apart, and they realised that there was no me. Yeah. So I mean, I, I get I, eventually, I guess, even a hopeless existence is is an opportunity for growth. Yeah. Well, I mean, if it's truly hopeless, because a lot of a lot of times it's not completely hopeless. There's the hope that something better will happen. Mm. Um, but when that dismantles, then all of a sudden, one sees that there's no problem at all. Mm. Did I tell you that story? Did we cover the story of the person that was seasick? Yes. We did do that. <laughs> that was beauty, yeah. 
No, we've never lost anyone due to seasickness. And the, the sick passenger goes, don't tell me that. It was only the, 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 the possibility of uh, death that was keeping me alive. Yeah, yeah, the hope of death. Yeah. yeah, but I think that's a very interesting question, isn't it? Because so much of our um, behavior is based on expectation of things being a certain way. Mm. And really that's just a, a, the hallmark of ego. Ultimately, the desire to control, the mm. desire to, to believe that something should be a particular way mm. is, is, as we say, just another form of bondage. It's complete bondage mm, because mm. With, without the hold of that, without the hold of that, all that's happening is life just expresses itself in its myriad ways. In its myriad ways. Speaking of myriad, I can hear the myriad tones of the 24-piece studio orchestra. I can. Can you hear those? Yes. Yeah, I mean, all the different instruments there in concert, always on time. And we're going to defer to their good graces now and to exit respectfully from this show. So I'll say goodbye and thank you for your time today, Jensen. Thanks, Peter. And thanks to all of you who are listening. And we'll see you next time.